I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Emily Nicola. Hi, Jesse. Columnist, anthropologist, uh, soon to be instructor at the University of Toronto, a course on Black Lives Matter in the media. Welcome to Shortcuts. <laughs> Thank you. Today we're going to talk about the Heritage Ministry's little-known policy to change the playing field for Canadian magazine advertising. I'm, I'm just kidding, Emily. We're going to talk about the fucking U.S. election <laughs> and the fucking coverage of the fucking U.S. election. And we're going to talk about uh, our Prime Minister. He has just announced a massive reduction to our charter rights. Nobody seems to have noticed, though. I think it's because he announced it in French. Good to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to uh, be on the air with you again. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Jordan Holmes, Puneet Mystery, Chris Ryder, Kevin Gojmarak, Touch Fluffy Tail, Raina Bonang, Mike Joe, and Charlie Cole. My name is Charlie Cole, and I'm a mechanic living in Vancouver, British Columbia. I support Canada Land because I think it's increasingly necessary in this age of dis- and misinformation to have outlets that are critical of the media and that admit to their own biases or shortcomings. I appreciate Jesse's perspectives even when we disagree, and I'm proud to support the outlet that broke the news of the Wii scandal. Commons is an easy 10 out of 10, Cool Mules is amazing, and Thunder Bay was shocking, riveting journalism. I love Canada Land. Emily, this is the time of year when other people become supporters of Canada Land, and then I thank them 
uh, as I just thank those supporters. If people want me to, I thank them. I don't if they don't want me to. And uh, those are the people who pay for everybody else to get all of our stuff. And we're doing like, there's like 150,000 downloads of our stuff every week and and just around 7,000 people paying for everybody else to get it. Those people pay for everything that we do. They paid for uh, the episode that you were on and, and a lot of people remarked to me about uh, how much they appreciated and, and enjoyed that episode. I thought that was uh, kind of a breakthrough for us, something that we've been trying to do since we started. Emily, I felt like in that conversation, we achieved something, like we did something that I've been trying to do since starting Candidland and never quite got there in, in terms of really digging into French language media in, in a non, I don't know, gawkery kind of a way and, and understanding <laughs> it. Um, I, I just felt like we had, like I, I understood something more at the end of that than I did from the beginning. Did it mean as much to you as it did to me? I don't know what it meant to you, but I know that it was a lot of fun. I, I, I know that it was a lot of fun to do because I myself, you know, Quebec media is also a, a sort of a bubble. So that when you're within it, you uh, write or you discuss stories in a way that, you know, you assume a common understanding of things. So you don't necessarily make them explicit in the same way uh, than if I'm having a conversation with you. And I think making them explicit is actually a really good exercise, uh, both for there's a lot of uh, Quebecois listeners as well who appreciated that because that's something that, once again, when you're we're just amongst ourselves, I guess, in French, we don't necessarily take the time to do that. And um, perhaps we underestimate how much we also need it. Did you uh, get much of a response to that episode? It was overwhelming and uh, very surprising. There's a lot of people who I think had some sort of aha moments of understanding things about Quebec. And I still get some people tagging me on Twitter even now about, you know, stuff from three weeks ago that is helping them uh, understanding the, the news now, the news cycle that is currently going on. Um, so yeah, I guess something was achieved. We, we've received that uh, tremendous response and people just say, basically saying, we want to hear a lot more from Emily and we want to hear a lot more about Quebec media and French language media in Canada, uh, in, in the same way that, uh, that Emily was able to just take us into it and help us understand it. So that's, I, I, I will uh, reveal to you that, that, that was the inspiration for one of our crowdfunding goals. And, and it's our next crowdfunding goal. Cause we hit our first one of just getting basically enough resources to kind of provide more support for the journalism here uh, writ large. And now we're on to establishing this permanent beat for, French language coverage uh, on Canada land. And, you know, we won't get into who will be doing that, but I really, really hope it's you if we get there. And I just want people to know that that is what we are driving towards right now. And that's where your money is going to go if you go to canadaland.com slash join, or if you hit the link in the show notes and um, upgrade your uh, support for us or become a supporter of Canada land. And we got socks and other good stuff. So I'm really hopeful and excited. I think we can get there and I'm looking forward to a lot more conversations like the one we're going to have today, Emily. Well, you cannot see me, but I'm making some sort of Machiavellic hand gesture uh, with my fingers, tapping them together. So <laughs> that's how I'm responding to that. <laughs> Excellent. Canadaland.com slash join. Go do it now. Okay, so we're talking the morning after, the night before, the night that never ended. Uh, people are hearing this on Thursday. Maybe they'll know who who won the U.S. presidential election. And Emily, you know, our job today is this kind of granular thing of talking about the Canadian coverage, both in English and French language media. But I, like, I feel like that's to go there before just kind of taking stock of where we're at. Like, this is like, 
it's it's such a rare thing for everybody to hit this kind of emotional moment at the exact same time of like four years of pent up anxiety, dread, feeling all towards this juncture point, and then everybody processing the same thing at the same time. How are you feeling? Uh, I think I'm in denial. I think I'm, I'm like having a out-of-body kind of experience where I'm strangely calm and focused, but I know that it's because I'm uh, blocking some sort of uh, uncertainties. Like many Canadians, I have friends in the U.S. A lot of them are people who, you know, could be uh, targeted by the Trump regime of, you know, targeting Antifa, the repression on protesters and such things. So I'm really actually worried about the safety of some people. So and I, there's nothing I can do about it. So I think my brain chooses to just go in in some sort of a la-la land of uh, pretending it's fine and we're just waiting for the results. So I guess it's a the calm before the storm kind of thing. The powerlessness is something that I certainly feel as yeah. well. Just the, the yeah. nothing, nothing we can do. Like, and just for something to be so all-consuming that you had. I mean, I'm sure it's not that different for Americans who feel like, "What's my vote?" Um, but like, to not even have that, and for it to have such bearing on, you know, people that we know and love, but also ourselves. And I just feel like, you know, knowing that the overwhelming majority of Canada is, is against Trump, uh, everyone's feeling. I think it's not a stretch to say people are feeling really depressed and sad. And and I'm, I just wanted to interrogate my own feelings about this of like, what, what did I want to feel? I guess what people wanted to feel and what perhaps I wanted to feel was like, what would be decisive would be not just a, a victory for the other side, but like a decisive one. Right. I take your point that like there are practical matters at hand. The Trump regime has very specific consequences for people that are harmful and like uh, to whatever degree, uh, Biden is the lesser of two evils. It, it is a difference. Um, it's a difference for the environment. It's a difference for immigration. It's a difference for a lot of things. But I I just wanted to kind of try to express some, some feelings I'm having about that relief of no longer having to feel the way that we felt for the last four years. And, and the way that I think a lot of people have felt the last four years is like, there is no one in control. My values are not everyone's values. Uh, you might have to get involved. You might have to fight for something. I think what people wanted to be unburdened from is that feeling. I think they wanted things to go back to the way they were. It's really interesting what you're saying because it reminds me of some really, um, I guess, emotional arguments I've had uh, with people, a lot of them analysts, a lot of them uh, people with voices in the media after the 2016 election, because a lot of them were, you know, thinking that Trump would never win, first of all. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of us would thought that. Uh, but moreover, people were saying, this is about economic anxiety. Uh, this is about people not liking globalism. Uh, this is about the arrogance of the elites. This is about working class. And then you had a lot of Black commentators being like, no, this is about racism. Yeah. And uh, we got shut down basically by those by those media, white media voices, both in Canada and the U.S. saying, no, this is not about that. You silly people obsessing over race. And four years later, here we are again. And I'm hearing a lot of the same things. People saying, well, the Trump supporters, you know, there's something about how, you know, they're worried about fracking and they're worried about automobile industry uh, in the Great Lakes. I'm seeing this same cycle. While we've had four years of children in cages, police officers randomly harassing people, if not killing them on the streets, we've had the worst 
you know, public declarations about uh, even eugenics, foreign policies, you know, Muslim bans. We've had the whole thing. And then people are still saying, and I've that's well, some of the things I've heard last night, you know, we need to put, you know, Trump supporters on the air and understand their side of the story that is not about white supremacy. And to me, um, I don't know. I don't know if I feel... Uh, disappointed because I think that was always a divide between, I guess, people who never saw the U.S. as this place of uh, hope and regularity and, you know, leader of the free world. We're seeing, you know, still the divide between, you know, white women vo voting overwhelmingly for Trump even even more than in 2016. Uh, and we're seeing a diagnosis of, of um, U.S., of American society that I feel like still after four years, four years of this mess, there's still a lot of people who are not ready to understand what it means and where we're where we're going, you know. My Twitter nemesis, Jonathan Torrens, who uh, I know is a more likable and happy person than I am, uh, I, I think he actually, I'm not trying to set him up for bashing here. I think he reflected a lot of people's feelings. He tweeted, you know, Americans had a chance to rebuke all of the selfishness, the rudeness, the disrespect, the distrust, the hate, the pettiness, the racism, the crassness of the past four years and say, this is not who we are. Why are half the people okay with that? And he wasn't alone in feeling that way. Like, I'm not like the, like, wh why? Why are you people going for this? Why do you want more of the way it's been? And, you know, his mentions were filled with people just being like, I know they're so terrible. I don't understand them. And it made me think of like that painting in The Simpsons of the unicorn standing in front of the mushroom cloud. And the unicorn is thinking, why? As a tear drips down his face. <laughs> and finally, one of his followers said, because that's who they are. And honestly, we should stop making excuses and just believe them this time. The reality is that regardless of the final result, you can be a full-blown, hateful, white supremacist and get half or nearly half of the votes of people in the United States. Regardless who becomes the president, that is a fact. And that is a fact that will remain a fact. And that is a fact that in some ways always was a fact. And we will need to contemplate that, wrestle with that, accept that, and do something about that. Uh, but I think that any kind of analysis that is about this fact, uh, being an anomaly, uh, being a mistake, I think there's a tendency to go there because we don't want to face this continent. And I think we as Canadians, being so close to the U.S., there are some truths about the origin of our culture um, as settler colonial states that we also don't want to look at. But I think if there is hope of rebuilding differently, it cannot happen without at least facing the goddamn facts. So the job is, uh, how do the Canadian media do? Why would I watch the Canadian media coverage uh, who are just getting their same results from the American media coverage? I mostly watched um, CNN and Fox News and others. I did ask if people were watching Canadian coverage. and A lot of people said, yes, because it's calmer. I'm watching it for the ASMR. I'm on that team. Are you on, that, on team? that team? Jesse. So tell me about the, like, the, the coverage in French media. Were the same trends prevalent? And, and what, was this looked at as like a surprising election night, an anomalous election night? Like, uh, what, what was your impression? I take it you were following Canadian coverage. What were you following 
English or French language coverage? The French one, but I had also CNN another on my projector. Oh, that's cool. So you could compare and contrast. So to tell me how they have. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that. I think Radio Canada was better <laughs> uh, in the sense that because U.S. networks are in competition with one another, they're always trying to announce things uh, and, you know, get the more ratings. Uh, Canadian media are kind of out of that game. And so the calm also comes from that. Uh, and it's also that they're able to aggregate basically uh, what's what's being said in the mainstream and in, in the main newsroom in the U.S. and kind of make a mean out of that or try, trying to make sense of all of what's being said because they have a team that listens to it all. So instead of having yourself to have like three different monitors of, you know, the different U.S. channels, if you listen to a Canadian media uh in the best world, it means that you kind of like have that work done for you. Um, there's also this calm that comes with a little bit of a distance, uh, but there's more of an analysis that kind of names uh, the things that needs to be named, that explains the thing that needs to be explained. And then you end up doing a pedagogy work that actually would benefit a lot of American voters, because I do not believe that all Americans understand their own electoral system that well. How many times was that explained uh, on, on the Radio Canada's coverage? A lot of the times. And there's, I think in French, there's like the double distance of like we're Canadians, but there's also the French distance. When there's supporters on the end, Trump supporters on the air, they're also usually uh, translated, right? It's hard for Radio Canada to find people that actually speak French uh, to give the mic to. So you have also that kind of safer distance of not having annoying people on the air all the time. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I guess this um, this kind of a uh, yeah outsider perspective, I think, gives gives us perhaps some insight. I'll say this though: the American coverage, I think, did a decent job uh, on a couple of fronts where they did not do so well four years ago. The message that we need to be patient and uh, I think trying to correct for their historic rush to declare states for this or that, which has an impact on reality, false early calls can actually skew things. Um, I think they were reserved uh, and held off in doing that. And I think that one of the big journalistic questions that faced um, American cable news and American news in general, which is like, what do you do if Trump declares victory? And start saying things that aren't true. And it's incredibly explosive, like for him to say, uh, we won Georgia before that's true. All of this was right. anticipated. And uh, what are you going to do? And at least in the case of NBC and MSNBC, they cut him off. Canadian coverage in English Canada did not. They gave him uh, full time. He was able to speak throughout his his whole message, which was filled with, with uh, volatile errors. Arguably, we don't have the same risks here of people rushing to the streets violently. But um, that is something that American media did, I think, more responsibly than, than English language Canadian media. I mean, there was uh, some post analysis from CTV and CBC where they went over the factual inaccuracies, but they handed over their airwaves to him. There is also this very concrete idea that if you put Trump on the air, people love to hate watch him and it actually dries up your numbers of people listening to you. And that's something that a lot of Canadian newsroom are very familiar with and they don't shy away from it. And often when I do actually some segments with on television, I'm often, you know, waiting for my panel to start because there's a Donald Trump presser. Right. Uh, so I, I know that. But at the same time, you know, the risks of doing that is more because we're outside. I think the kind of ethical responsibility is, is lesser, definitely for Canadian media. Yeah, I think it's true. Like you can ding us for it, but the same outcomes are not possible. Yeah. So maybe get off the hook that way. What are you watching in terms of media consumption? Where are you oriented as we go forward? 
whatever the end result is, uh, Trump already announced that he's going to go to the Supreme Court. I need to write a column this afternoon. I don't even know there's no result. I don't even know what I do with this. Uh, but I think it's, it's about trying to do, get a head start, I guess, on the analysis that will remain the same regardless of who wins because the winner will have won in a, in a race that's incredibly close. And the fact that the United States is incredibly divided remains a fact. And so I guess we need to get to go to that place in our mind. The fact that this country is not working well remains whoever, whatever the, the crooked system actually actually ends up giving us for a result. Yeah. I mean, who could have known? Kel's surprise. Like, uh, if only we had some indication four years ago. <laughs> right. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Emily, we're going to duly note some things that with this just completely all-consuming American election uh, would otherwise perhaps go uh, unnoticed or not as noticed as they should. I'll begin by talking about a recent decision of the CBC Ombudsman. I didn't even know that this show recap existed. It's this uh, news for kids thing that's on CBC Gem. It's on the app and they put it on YouTube as well. I mean, I, I guess, you know, I'm not the intended audience, but looking at the numbers of viewers in their YouTube feed, it doesn't look like a lot of people know about this recap thing. And you wouldn't expect necessarily like ultra right-wing pundits to be watching CBC's News for Kids channel. But it came to their attention when they did a short video responding to the J.K. Rowling transphobic tweet controversy. It's 2020. Releasing these kind of statements online is not a good look. And hasn't she been accused of transphobic stuff in the past? 
Um, yeah, last year she was criticized for supporting a woman who was fired after saying that trans women weren't real women. Sis, read the room. There are so many conversations right now about equality, justice, and racism. Is it any surprise that the story is going up right now? Exactly. I watched this video, Emily, after this became an issue for the CBC Ombudsman. And I thought it was, like, lousy. Not because of any reason except that, like, it's just like these teenagers saying that J.K. Rowling was wrong because she's been accused of being transphobic in the past or she's wrong because she didn't read the room or because there are so many conversations right now about equality, justice, and racism. It was a learning opportunity to get into, like, well, what does it mean if somebody identifies as a man but continues to menstruate? And what is J.K. Rowling saying? Uh, like, no time. Like, there's, like, a second where that's, like, kind of alluded to in the video. There's no learning or explanation in this video. It's just kind of like this peer pressure thing of, like, we all agree that she's transphobic and therefore she is. I didn't love this video, but here's what the complainant to the CBC ombudsman said. The complainant accused the Youth Current Affairs program of destroying the minds of tweens and creating an army of young zombies. And the CBC's ombudsman ruled for the complainant and said that the heart of the problem in this program was not the series of viewpoints that were heard, but the viewpoints that were not heard. Uh, it's really interesting to see, uh, and I think it's an ongoing conversation at CBC, but I think in a lot of different newsroom, uh, what, how objectivity gets used and how it doesn't and what it how it becomes basically weaponized in some ways. And I think that's a great example of how basically people are like, well, yeah, transphobia deserves um, deserves the mic as well. <laughs> Can you imagine how they're going to actually satisfy this ruling from the Obensman? Like the cool group of kids on CBC Recap, uh, there's a new cast member. It's our little reactionary friend. Yeah, that's right. Like there's no there's no <laughs> way specifically for that. But I do think that, like, there's a lot of kids where, like, you know, they grew up with families that have no uh, trans folks around them and who themselves don't necessarily understand this, this issue. So, you know, explaining uh, what it is in a way that actually, instead of just saying, well, we all know we should be, be believing that, duh, um, would have been better. And perhaps if it had been done that way, then there would have been no hook for, for, for them to use objectivity in that way as well. So duly known it. <laughs> Emily, what do you have? Well, I think it's not so uh, not well known that there was an attack actually on Halloween night in Quebec City um, yeah. and that it started. I don't know if that's well known, the fact that it started a conversation about mental health in Quebec. And that's the part that I think is interesting, how uh, basically this man uh, went on rampage in the old part of the city, killed two, injured five others. And then immediately, uh, the mayor of Quebec City, Régis Labon, says, you know, we need to have a conversation about mental health services. Now there's this uh, debate going on in terms of how much people they, they have on waiting lists for psych psychotherapy. And I, I just find it really interesting that that's the starting point from this conversation, that you needed to have a man kill two people on the streets for that to be a conversation. And to me, that very much contrasts with this other news that we actually haven't spoke about a lot, which is last Thursday, a man in Montreal, Sheffield Matthews, a black man, was killed by the police. The police said that he was uh, marching toward police or advancing towards police with, with an ice and that he was in a mental health crisis. 
So on one, on one hand, in Quebec City, you have this man who killed two people in George 5 and is brought in by the Quebec City police in the hospital because he was actually cold. And so they cared for his hypothermia. And then on the other hand, in Montreal, you have this man, Sheffield Matthews, who was killed by the police in a minute, uh, shot multiple times while he had not injured actually anyone. And that didn't start a conversation about mental health. Actually, that didn't start a conversation at all. It's something that is almost nobody spoke, speaks about. There's, there's newsroom who even haven't actually printed anything about it. Even with all the conversations we've had since the, the, the death of George Floyd, when that happens, it's still something that goes uh, completely unnoticed and does not start a conversation about mental health. Although one of the information that we have is that he was in a mental health crisis. And the other element of that that I want to contrast with is there's actually a lot of people in Montreal North who have been reporting as well incidents of gun violence since the summer. And uh, the Montreal police is publicizing that as a way to actually increase their funding for the police, that there should be more police surveillance uh, near uh, schools in that borough, which is... um, a lot of uh, Black, Latino and Arabs immigrants actually living there. So I'm just basically in terms of news coverage, on one hand, a white man killing two people, injuring five, starts a national conversation about mental health. A black man being killed by the police, also in mental health crisis, doesn't start any conversation at all. And also the fact that you have this impoverished, also black neighborhood, um, who he is having a lot of issues since because it's one of the most impacted with COVID-19. There's a lot of poverty there. There's a lot of, you know, 2020 is especially hard on this neighborhood. And then the response to what's going on in this neighborhood is not a conversation about mental health. It's a conversation about funding for, for the police. And so those three kind of stories put together, that is such a great example of, you know, the double standards that we have, who our empathy goes to, and which problem gets framed as a public, you know, safety problem, and which problem gets framed as a public health problem. And that is very old news in a way, but it's just, it's in my face in the last couple of days, and it's really annoying. And what better show than Kenela Land, you know, uh, talking about media nonsense to actually discuss that frustration that I have. Yeah, that's what we're here for. Uh, I, yeah. I noticed that as well. <laughs> Yeah, duly noted. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> one, one last one that I just, uh, I, I just can't help myself. I'm trying to. Uh, there's just so much other stuff that requires attention and coverage, and yet, uh, weird article in the Times of Israel. Somebody sent this to me. I'm like, what am I reading here? Percepto is an Israeli stealth PR firm, and their slogan is influencing reality to defend your reputation. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Uh, The the client list of Percepto, the stealth PR firm, uh, includes kind of a a whole list of Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs. And they have partnered up with Bell Pottinger, uh, which is the focus of a recent Canada land uh, that that, that Kasia hosted. Uh, Bell Pottinger, of course, is the PR firm that the New York Times called a PR firm for despots and rogues. So Percepto is working with these oligarchs. They're working with uh, Bell Pottinger. And all of this was discovered because Percepto made an error while they had one of their sock puppet accounts manipulating a Wikipedia page of We Charity. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. How can I ignore this? I'm trying to move on. You sound like a conspiracy theorist right now. <laughs> Except there it is. I don't write for the Times of Israel, or do I? So um, they left a breadcrumb 
whoever was editing this me to we wiki page uh, left a file reference to a Dropbox file folder, which was like active clients slash May 2019 project slash me to we wiki page. That's the file folder as they were manipulating and adding uh, positive things to the me to we wiki page. Uh, according to the Globe and Mail, Jaron Kerr and Jeffrey York reporting, we charity denies hiring Percepto. It's a little bit like the Trump election, right? There is a world in which, like, we know that there are some firms that do exactly that, but we would assume that they would not say it that explicitly on their websites. And so there is a world in which it's actually a positive <laughs> thing to not even shy or, you know, hide what you're actually up to. That's what, you know, comes to my mind when I'm listening to you is is that there is a world in which that is a good thing to put on the internet and that there is a social environment around you that encourages you to put that on the internet. But it's too much for, for me to take in on the November 4th. You know, I've already had the election to deal with, Jesse. Oh, yeah. I cannot, I cannot, I, <laughs> I, I just can't. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand and I apologize. Um. <laughs> Duly noted, but whatever. <laughs> Emily, our prime minister uh, was asked a question recently about uh, whether we have the right to mock religion and uh, specifically if we have the right to mock the prophet Muhammad. And here is what Justin Trudeau said. D'abord, nous allons toujours défendre la liberté d'expression. C'est un droit protégé dans nos chartes des droits et libertés. C'est une valeur et un principe fondamental pour toute société libre et nous allons toujours la défendre. Mais la liberté d'expression n'est pas sans limite. On n'a pas le droit, par exemple, de crier au feu dans un cinéma bondé de monde. Il y a, des, il y a toujours des limites. Mais dans une société pluraliste, diverse et respectueuse comme la nôtre, nous nous devons d'être conscients de l'impact de nos mots, de nos gestes sur d'autres, particulièrement ces communautés, ces populations qui vivent énormément de discrimination encore dans un système qui, qui continue de discriminer. Donc, oui, nous allons toujours défendre la liberté d'expression, mais nous nous devons d'agir de, avec respect pour les autres et de chercher à ne pas blesser de façon arbitraire ou inutile euh, ceux avec qui on est en train de, de partager une société et une planète. Emily, can I impose upon you to, uh, to translate that? So, uh, he basically says that um, freedom of expression is really important and it, it's protected in our choice of rights and freedom. Um, and it's a fundamental value in a free society. But and it also has... Um, its limit. Uh, for example, you cannot uh, cry wolf or cry fire uh, in the middle of a, of a full movie theater. So there needs to uh, be some limits in a society uh, that is uh, respectful and diverse as ours, especially uh, when we think of populations that, that are discriminated or face you know, the, the burden of, dis of systemic discrimination. Um, we need to be careful to respect them and uh, not to hurt uh, with no purpose, uh, basically, if you want to live in, 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 a, in a society that, that is based on respect. In a nutshell. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, 
I think you were more succinct uh, than he was, but thank you. I think the first thing to say about that is that he's wrong. I mean, he's technically wrong on two counts. First of all, uh, you know, Colby Kosh pointed this out, but you can yell fire in a crowded movie theater, especially if there is a fire. There is no limitation on free speech preventing you from doing that. And that's, uh, you know, a pretty frequently made mistake. But more to the point, he's the prime minister and he says, yes, we have a charter right to free expression, but there are limits to that. And under the kind of umbrella of the limits to free expression, he lists that in a pluralistic, diverse, respectful society like ours, we have to be aware of the impact of our words, our actions on others, particularly those that uh, affect communities and populations who experience discrimination, all of which might be nice advice and very apt advice and true, but that is not a formal limitation on our freedom of expression. It struck me as like, wow, did the prime minister just revoke or modify our charter rights in that answer? It was a very clumsy way uh, to phrase his point that I think is a valid point, but it was said in a way that is actually misleading. I think what the prime minister meant to say is that although freedom of expression exists, there is also a conversation to be had about why we choose to say certain things and what is the point of making that choice, right? So instead of mm -hmm. only talking about our rights to say certain things, we need to also talk about why we choose to say them, and the fact that there might be impacts, negative impacts when we choose to say certain things, and that we need to also have a society in which we try to be respectful of others, and especially uh, understanding of the situation in which minorities still are today, actually. So it's not necessarily like arguments of rights, of limiting of rights. It's, 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 a, it's a conversation about, you know, beyond our rights, there's a lot of things that are legal, that are not necessarily ethical. There's a lot of things that are, that there's no, nothing stopping you legally from doing, uh, but that your common sense and your sense of, I want to live in a society uh, in a way that's not antisocial uh, will, would stop you from doing, I think is what he was saying or what he tried to say, but he said it in a way that's so clumsy. It's definitely started a conversation and a kind of outrage, especially of Quebec politicians who've been closer to France that actually did not help uh, his cause or trying to make his, the point about, you know, let's also be respectful or try to be respectful as much as possible. He did it in a way that was actually, yeah, not helpful at all. Yeah. I mean, even w when you find yourself in a position of saying, well, I think what the prime minister meant to say, well, he's the fucking prime minister. Right. And, uh You know, I mean, the context of this, of course, is that there was a murder of a teacher in France who, in a lesson about freedom of expression, shared the Charlie Hebdo Muhammad cartoons, and then was later beheaded and murdered. There was another actually in Nice a couple of days ago. So it's been two um, two attacks uh, in France in a, in a matter of days on this issue. And so that's why I think a lot of people are jumping to, you know, conclusion and it's getting very emotional. And the way that President Macron is leading this conversation and, you know, trying to make politics out of this is also really just building a climate that is um, very, I'm really worried about actually French Muslims right now. It must be a very hard situation for them to be in, to be in at this moment. And in Quebec, because Premier Legault actually said that Macron had called him up to thank him for backing him on free speech. Yes. And he compared that 
to Bill 21, the secularism bill in Quebec. What do you make of that connection made between secularism and free speech and how like France's free speech is tied to Quebec's rules against like religious head covering for certain people? I guess that's a great way to say, especially to a French president or in a reaction to a, a call from a French president, because that Bill 21 is very much inspired by uh, laws that have become even more radical, actually, in France. Um, and so that's a way of tying it up. It's also a way of building this connection between freedom of speech as the right to be a militant atheist, basically, even when you're in a position of being a teacher for kids. So basically, the right to spite religion is, is something that is a growing obsession, both in France and in Quebec. And I think just more generally, it's about the polls and it's about when you talk about the right to insult minorities, would it be for Bill 21? Would it be for this whole debate about free speech? There's a lot of people who respond well to that. You know, we've just celebrated the 25th anniversary of the Quebec referendum. And I feel like there's a lot of people who are like, we didn't have a country, uh, but we will be strong in other ways. And one of those ways will be you know, showing you that we can crush you. Yeah, It breaks my heart, and I think it breaks the hearts of a lot of Quebec uh, sovereignists who are not about that, who are like, hey, by doing that, you're actually giving Quebec nationalism a bad name. But it's definitely a trend, and it will it will pay politically. It's been paying politically for the CAC uh, and for the ADQ, its predecessor, for over almost 20 years now, and they're going to continue to do it. And they're going to continue to import the worst idea that France has come up with. We're in this, in, like, in this situation again, where people are going to start sharing those cartoons as an act of defiance, right? And it's, um, you know, it, and I'm seeing in, in the post, Chris Selly just kind of like minimizes, like, oh, you know, these are just rude drawings. They're rude drawings, you know. Uh, Colby Kosh, you know, is like, oh, this was a teacher teaching a lesson. This was just a specimen of controversial art. This debate is such a fucking trap. Yeah, I yeah. mean. What am I trying to say? Emily, like, I feel so strongly <laughs> about shaming people and canceling people when necessary for the specific reason that I don't want the government telling me those things. I feel like right. we have to deal with those things in civil society because I don't want uh, our prime minister on a little jolly riff about what he thinks the limitations to my charter rights are. Right. Um, I think that part of context that uh, people might be missing is... The impact of the whole N-word frenzy at the University of Ottawa two weeks ago and the impact that this still has in the conversation we're having right now. Because people are making those connections, although it's very irresponsible. When uh, the N-word scandal exploded at the University of Ottawa, it was, I think, two days or the day after the French teacher was beheaded. Emily, can you get us up to speed with that controversy? Yes. So uh, a teacher at the University of Ottawa said the word in class uh, in a context in which I think she was trying to explain how it was being uh, recuperated by the Black community. Um, but she's herself not Black and she used the word, uh, the one that actually ends with the ER. She said that uh, I think the student who complained in her class, a white student, raised a complaint and then there was a reaction with the University of Ottawa. I think the teacher was suspended. Uh, for a little while and most of her students transferred to another class because there was a basically a trust that was broken, if I understand correctly. But really, uh, Isabelle Haché, who's a columnist with La Presse, digged out that story and it became a huge thing in the news cycle in Quebec. It's just only dying out in the last couple of days because uh, now everybody's eyes are, are on the U.S. election. 
but really it was framed as a fight for academic freedom and freedom of expression for white people to have the right to say the n-word versus people like myself who had to you know intervene in this debate uh, I was on Tour Monde en Parle uh, two weeks ago trying to say, you know, put the conversation on rights aside. This is just a conversation about, you know, what is the impact that this world has on black kids in Canada today? Can we just have a conversation about trying to be more decent people to one another and not use this word that is basically a weapon and circulate those weapons in society in a way that's actually not necessary? And so that's why I feel like the conversation that, you know, what Justin Trudeau just said about freedom of expression and the limits when, when it comes to being respectful to minorities, we need to understand that it's also informed by this new cycle around the N-word. And so both the, the, the caricature of the prophet and, and this are basically examples of minorities saying, this is a hard line that a lot of us would like you not to cross. And it, it triggers a conversation about, yeah, but we can do it anyway because this is our right. Right. And as long as the conversation is focused about the fact that this is our right, rather than a conversation about why, you know, why, why do you want to say that? What does it bring to you? And mm -hmm. trying to move the conversation to more of a what is your point and what kind of society do you want to have rather than a legal conversation. And so those two incidents are very much tied together, but they're fueling a new cycle in France and in, especially uh, in Quebec about how freedom of expression for the majority to offend minorities is under threat uh, somehow. And it's important. It might become a political priority uh, for the CAC in the next weeks to try to do something about how to entrench more freedom of expression. The CAC, I think, is finding it a very uh, lucrative news cycle. Sure. Because it makes them feel like they're defending the nation against, you know, uh, minorities who are against uh, reason and reasonable debate and freedom of speech. I'll tell you, though, I just I I I, I want to take this issue back from racists, bigots and extreme rightists like freedom of speech does not belong to them. It's becoming this thing where people now right. roll their eyes when you bring up free expression or free speech like, oh, this is obviously just a cover for your racism. Uh, th that's that's dangerous to me. I, and I'm not I'm not willing to let them have this issue. Like it's uh, it's something that everybody needs. I guess the, 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 the slogan or, you know, the motto in France is liberté, égalité, fraternité. And mm -hmm. what we're noticing in the last years is that, you know, free, people are only assisting on the freedom part, but I've never, you know, heard the French president say anything about the equality and the brotherhood part. Those are principles that are supposed to be in balance. And we need to have a conversation about, you know, trying to strike that balance. Uh, which doesn't actually undermine any of those principles. It's just a way of saying, if you're only defending one, perhaps you're actually not that much of a nationalist, Republican, whatever, as, as you, you say you, you are, uh, because that was never actually what the social contract was supposed to be about. All right. Thank you, Emily. That is Canada Land Shortcuts, everybody. Uh, I can be emailed at jesse at canadalandshow.com, and I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Emily, where can people find you? On Twitter, <laughs> mostly. Uh, and uh, I also write for Le Devoir if you want to practice your French. Our website is canadaland.com, and it is crowdfunding month, and we need your help. And uh, we want to cover French language media in this country in an ongoing way. And that's what we're driving towards right now at canadaland.com slash join. Please come help us. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Kate McIntosh. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. 
Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Our theme music is by So Called. If you like what we do, please support us at candleland.com slash join. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.